0: Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that we are alive and are here because we want to know you better. We want to understand you and your word so that we can live a life for you and with you. And so, Lord, as we talk today, what is systematic theology? What is doctrine? What is this Bible that we are going to be studying deeply? I just pray that we would fall more in love with your word. Please help us to fall more in love with your word today. In your name we pray. Amen. So today we're going to answer the big question, what is systematic theology? What is the word of God? What is the canon of scripture? Because if we don't start there, we're not going to see how it builds each week. So we want to first ask the question, what is systematic theology? Point by point, level by level. So there's a system, there's a structure. It's not random, right? And so here's how we would define systematic theology. How Grudem defines it. It is any study that answers this question. And remember, if I talk too fast, I will send you the notes. But this is the question. What does the whole Bible teach us today about any given topic? What does the whole Bible teach us today about any given topic. A common topic right now is gender, Mm -hmm. right? I'm discipling a young woman who identifies as non-binary, and we need to see what does the whole Bible teach us today on this topic of her identifying as non-binary, right? And the Bible can do that. And so this is the question we're going to ask about whatever today is affecting our society. What does the Bible say about that? So the emphasis of systematic theology is on what God wants us to believe and know about the topic. What does God want us to believe and know about the topic? For example... If we were to talk to somebody that is saying gender is fluid and we wanted to show a biblical perspective, we would take them back to Jesus in Matthew when he was talking to the Pharisees. And he said, do you not know from the beginning that God created man and woman? He is validating the book of Genesis that talks about God created us as man and woman. And then he talks about marriage and divorce when he's talking to the Pharisees. So there's a way we can study these topics. So the difference between systematic theology and doctrine is, doctrine is what the whole Bible teaches us today. Same beginning, right? The whole Bible teaches us today about a particular topic so each week we're going to have a particular topic who is god what is the trinity what is creation what is sin what is salvation these are all what are called doctrines of the faith and these are the foundations of what we believe and part of the reason to take this class and even if something doesn't sound exciting to you in the moment is you will leave feeling confident i know god better i know the word better and i have a foundation on which to start answering the questions of the world today So how does one do this? How do we do this? Well, let's start with this first. What are the main reasons you think Christians should study theology? And theology means, theo means God, and ology means study of something. So theology is just the study of God, okay? So what do you think are some of the main reasons we should study God? Theology. Why should we do that? Yeah, you got to know about something before you decide if you want to believe it. So let's look, If can someone look up for me, please? Matthew 28, 19 and 20. This is what's called the Great Commission. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Last year, some of the women in this group were learning how to make disciples to go and disciple others. But some of the intimidation factor is the second part of that verse that says, to teach believers to observe all that I've commanded. And then all of a sudden we get a little nervous. I don't know all that he's commanded. I don't know how to teach the Bible. That might not be my spiritual gift. So therefore, people get nervous about discipling sharing and and investing in others one-on-one and yet we are all called to be a part of the great commission and so part of the reason of taking this class part of the reason of learning and studying theology is so that you can help others observe all that god's commanded right this is not just for you this is so you know how to articulate it to others Okay, so that's another reason we're doing it. It helps us to overcome our wrong ideas. Sometimes you don't even know you have an unbiblical view until the Bible pops it up at you. You know, one thing we talked about last year too is about half the group had been raised in Catholicism. And so going from Catholicism to an evangelical church, sometimes you don't realize what some of the differences are until pop. It's right there in your face when you're reading something in the Word. So it helps us overcome wrong ideas. It helps us to make better decisions later on when new questions of doctrine might arise. And here is the problem, is our culture is changing so quickly and the church is very behind to say, what is the doctrine on this? or the doctrine on that, and then to teach it to the congregants. Maybe the pastors might have a right view on certain topics of our society right now, but if we are not learning that for ourselves, we will not be able to influence the people around us. So we need to learn right doctrine. And finally, it's gonna help us to grow as Christians, right? When you have the right understanding of God and his word, you are gonna grow. So even if these next few months feels a little cognitive, know that he says, when you know the truth, the truth, what sets you free. free." So it's not just, oh, I feel this, this awesome feeling in my heart doesn't say that the emotion sets you free. It's truth that sets you free. And so even if you're not going to hear some, a lot of awesome stories or a lot of amazing things in that way, you want to embrace this truth is going to set me free. And it's going to set others free. And that is why we study theology. I got a master's in theology because I felt like One, there were very few women that cared to study that. Two, if I'm going to write and teach, I better have good theology. And two, I don't want to ever be a pastor. I like being a missionary, but I wanted to be able to talk at the level of a pastor and be respected. If there ever was a theological difference, I didn't agree on. And so that is why I took the journey to do that for further study. So the next question, what is the difference? Maybe you have heard this before. What is the difference between a major doctrine and a minor doctrine in the Bible. Remember doctrines are topics like sin, salvation, creation. So some are called major doctrines and some are called minor doctrines. Do any of you have an idea of what that might be? What's the difference between a major doctrine and a minor doctrine? Here's how we would define it. A major doctrine has a significant impact on our thinking about other doctrines. Okay, is this gonna affect your thinking about other doctrines and does it have a significant impact on how you live the Christian life? So does it have an impact on how you think about other doctrines and does it have a significant impact on how you live the Christian life? For example, we must believe the Bible is authoritative, that it is not just stories that it's not full of a whole bunch of errors. We have to believe it's authoritative to figure out the right doctrines right or we will just not be able to figure out doctrine also trinity i wrote down just like mona said we have to believe in the trinity or we will be a cult like jehovah witness or mormonism we have to believe that christ himself was god and we have to believe in justification by faith which means we are seen as right before god because of our faith in jesus not because of our good works that is a salvation level doctrine and so these are major doctrines Now minor doctrines have little impact on how we think about other doctrines and it has little impact on how we live our life, but there's still doctrines in the Bible. There's still things you can care about and learn about and have an opinion on, but it might not greatly affect your life, (laughs) i.e. church government. Different churches run themselves differently, right? Does the pastor the leader, are elders the leader, do the church, the church get to vote Or is it just the leadership, right? So different churches create different church governments, and that is called a minor doctrine. The Lord's Supper and how we take the Lord's Supper every time we meet, once a month, every time we're in church, that is called a minor doctrine. Even something like end times and the Great Tribulation should be seen as a minor doctrine, okay? We can live our life in a way to please God and have different views on end times, right? So those are some major and minor doctrines. We will be focusing mainly on the majors because then we will have confidence and we don't have to argue and have division in the body of Christ on the minors. So what do you think is the role of human reasoning in the study of Scripture? Why do you think it's important to involve human reasoning in the study of Scripture? God gave us a mind to reason. Right? And so we are free to use our reasoning abilities when we come to the scripture to draw deductions from any passage of scripture, so long as what you're deducing or coming to a conclusion about does not contradict the clear teaching of some other passage. That's the problem. If you don't start learning the whole Word of God, if you don't learn all of these doctrines, you might study just one doctrine or you might study just one passage and get it wrong, right? So part of systematic theology, the amazingness of it, it. is let's say it takes all the verses about Jesus, all the verses about Trinity, and it creates a doctrine. But then as you create all the doctrines, sin, salvation, angels and demons, all these things, creation, they still have to mold together. They cannot contradict, right? We are allowed to use our reasoning when we come to the word of God, but not just in one verse or just in one doctrine. We need to reason it with the whole scripture. Does that make sense? So use reasoning but make sure you're not just in one small area. Now, what do you think the distinction is in Scripture between a paradox and a contradiction? Because that is where liberal theologians are going to say, Well, the Bible contradicts itself. And they're going to show you verses. And all of a sudden your faith might waver. And so you need to understand what is the difference between a paradox in Scripture and a contradiction? If you study the entirety of the word, the word does not contradict itself. It confirms itself. But there does seem to be paradoxes. And so what that means is, say, we can tolerate something that's a paradox. And I'll give you this example. There is one God, but God is three persons. What? We're going to study that in a few weeks, right? There is one God, but God is three persons. That is a paradox. Our mind cannot understand it. We need to remember that God says his ways are higher than our ways, right? We cannot understand the thoughts of God. We cannot understand how could there be one God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? So this is a paradox. It is not a contradiction. We cannot understand exactly how two statements about God can be true. How can we be, here's another great paradox in the Bible, and you see this in divisions of churches, we are chosen, and yet we're supposed to come to Jesus and and confess our sins and believe in him. Do we choose Jesus? Does Jesus choose us? How does that work, right? It's a paradox. You can find verses of both theologies when it comes to your salvation, but it doesn't mean that they're invalid okay or that they contradict one another. So you have to so when someone says, "Well, that contradicts." Say, "No, it's a paradox. We don't understand it, but I'm going to trust God's going to reveal it one day." Okay? So you need to be okay with paradoxes, but there are not contradictions. Does that make sense? The difference, that terminology is important. So the next question is, what are three steps in studying systematic theology? Since we're going to be doing this, we're already going to take the fruit of dr grudem who wrote the books right so we're not i'm not forcing you to go this week find all the verses on the trinity (laughs) this week (laughs) find all the verses on sin you know we're not doing our own systematic theology here but here is how you do it and this is how i write bible studies okay i've written two different bible studies this way first you find all relevant verses So when I did my Bible study on the will of God, I had to look up all the verses that had to do with God's will, his will, the Lord's will, all the different ways it talks about God's will. Then you read the verses in context, what's around the verses, what's the chapter about, take notes, summarize the points made in relevant verses. And what you're going to start to see is there are themes that are repeated often about that topic. And that's what you want to hone in on. What is the themes? The main, They keep reoccurring. What you don't want to do is think you're this oh wise person because you found this one rogue idea over here. And look, I have the new amazing insight of all the theolo- theologians that have gone before us. Okay. Now, it is true that over time, the church and people that study the word of God have refined some theology. That does happen. Like, if you study the early church fathers, they had really weird views on some things, and then other things were profound. So, over time, we do, but we want to be careful and look for what are the main things we see continually being repeated when we're studying sin or God's will or things like that. Okay, and then the third thing is the teachings of the various verses should be summarized into one or more points. That the bible affirms about the subject so you're summarizing into one or two points of what the bible affirms about that subject so you want to kind of have a main theme of what that does so when i wrote god's will i decided there were three main things that came out of the 50 verses that god cares about us being sanctified god cares about us being sent ones for him and god cares about us being filled with the spirit and it helped me because it was alliteration it was three three S's and so you want to think about what do you culminate that theology to be so that's how you can start studying different things the next thing we want to talk about is two things that are referred to as the word of God in the scripture So we're studying the word of God right so there when when we hear the term word of God it can mean two things one the actual person of Jesus Christ okay Jesus is the word you can see that in Revelation 19 13 and in John 1 1 he says in the beginning was the word meaning Jesus and the word was with God and the word was God it's another verse that proves Jesus was God okay so Jesus is called the word but also the word of God means speech by actually God the Father. speech by God the father Examples of this is his decrees that he sent out. A decree of God is a word of God that causes something to happen. A decree is creation. God spoke and creation happened. We'll study that more um, in a few weeks. But He spoke every single thing into creation except man and woman. There he formed him from the dust. There he took the woman out of the man. That everything else was by his words, right? Uh Next is God's words are of personal address. God spoke directly to people, right? Like Abraham or Moses. He would speak directly to the people. God also speaks through human lips by prophets in the Old Testament, or by the apostles in the New Testament. You can look at Jeremiah 1.9 for that. And then also God's words as he wrote in the Bible. Think about the Ten Commandments. That is God's written word, right? He, he gave that um, for us, the actual Ten Commandments. So when we hear word of God, we're either talking about Jesus or, or we could also be talking about God's actual word. So when we say the Bible is God's word, we are declaring these are actual words of god they are not just by some human person alone but they are breathed out god breathed by him next what is the canon of scripture okay the canon of scripture is all the books of the bible that we have today, the list of all the books, the 66 books of the Bible. And if you would like to study more about this, this was one of my professors, John D. Mead, and he just published this book this past year, Scribes and Scripture, the amazing story of how we got the Bible. He is the number one theologian in America on the canonization of the Bible. I mean, I had some good professors. This is, again, a heady read, but if you needed somebody you knew was like, well, I don't know if I can trust the Bible, and it's written all these thousands of years by all these different type of people in three different languages, he shows you in depth how that is. So this is a a great resource if you need to defend the canonation of scripture. And you can look at that after if you'd like. After approximately, think about this, 435 BC. So 435 years before Christ, there were no more additions to the Old Testament. The Old Testament was completely intact 435 years before Christ came to earth. Okay, so it has been around a long time, almost 2,500 years, the Old Testament has been intact. Okay, and here's how we know that it's valid. There is no record in the New Testament of a dispute between Jesus and the Jews over what's in that Old Testament canon of what those books are. Jesus never said that shouldn't be in there. Jesus would quote it. Jesus would teach it. Jesus would defend it. So we have confidence just for the fact that Jesus never said to any of the Jewish people, this should not be in the canon that he grew up with. That should give you confidence, right? The earliest list of Old Testament books that exist today, just in case you wanna know this, was documented by a guy named Melito, and he was the Bishop of Sardis, and it was written in 170 AD. So the earliest list, it wasn't the same exact list we have now. They were starting to compile it by 170 years. And that's the Old Testament? That's the Old, we're just talking Old Testament right now. But then it was fo- fully solidified by 435, okay? and And this book will explain how they did it and how all the different church leaders tried to figure it out and the order and stuff like that. We'll go back to the New Testament in a minute, but I want to ask about the Apocrypha. Some of you know what the Apocrypha is, huh? If you were raised in the Catholic Church, it would have been a part of your Bible, (laughs) right? I mean, really, all church started with the Catholic Church. And it wasn't until the Reformation and Martin Luther that we ended up not being all the Catholic Church. And so the Apocrypha was a collection of books that were included in the Bible and still today is in the Roman Catholic Church. And here is another key important thing to realize. They had never been accepted by the Jews. The Jews never accepted the Apocrypha. So we're going back to the beginning. I mean, what, what are things are being accepted? The Jews never said the Apocrypha was scripture, nor did Jesus say the Apocrypha was scripture. So how did it get into the first Bibles? Because the first Bibles were the Catholic Bible. That was all we had, right? Well, this guy named Jerome was the first person who wrote the Latin Bible, which was called the Latin Vulgate translation. And he put it this way. These are good books of the church, but they're not part of the canon. So it started with all good intention. Jerome thought, I'm going to write the Bible. It's finally going to be in print, but these are also really good things. So I'm just going to add them in. And he never said, They were part of the canon, but people started to believe it because Jerome's so far away now. People just say, well, look, it's all in one book. It all must be equal information, but it wasn't, and it didn't meant to be, even from the person who put it in the very first written Bible. Now, this other man, that was Jerome, this other man named Josephus also said he did not consider the Apocrypha as equal to the canon because by 95 AD, so right after Christ died, resurrected, right, the apostles were out there, 95 AD, there was a fixed number of books that the Jewish people counted as scripture and the number of books had been fixed for long ages. So, Josephus is living in 95 AD. He's saying the Jews know this is the fixed scripture. So look, the Apocrypha was already around in 95 AD. It's really early. And so again, he's just saying, no, the the Jews have never accepted it. So here's other reasons we should not accept the Apocrypha. It actually, in the Apocrypha, they do not claim for themselves to be the authority, like the Old Testament writings. They don't say we are authoritative. So they're not claiming authority. We know that they're not regarded as God's word by the Jewish people. And the Jewish people were the ones that wrote them, right? So if, it's not like they came from some Greek, right? They, the Jewish people wrote the Apocrypha books and they themselves are saying it's not scripture. It was not considered scripture by the New Testament authors. New Testament authors did not use the Apocrypha when they taught in the churches or when they taught theology. So it's not necessary, okay? they also contain teachings up not paradox but inconsistent with the rest of the bible so some things in the apocrypha because they were written just by man and they are not inspired by god will contradict the bible so we this would deduce it to mean the apocrypha is merely human words and not god's word like the old testament that's what you got to know we're not saying it's all bad we're not saying people are wrong to read it we just got to say it's not scripture Does that make sense? That's what's important. It's not so heretical that it's going to take someone off the course of of salvation, I don't think. Okay, now we're going to talk about New Testament. What office did many of those who wrote the New Testament hold? Does anyone know? People that wrote the New Testament, do you know who they were? Like, you might know their names, but what what office did they hold in the church? Apostles. Yes. So, apostles in the New Testament are kind of like the prophets of the old. And The prophets of the old were given God's words and they spoke it to the people. The apostles were given God's word and they wrote it to people, right? So an apostle, what is the difference between an apostle and a disciple? An apostle is somebody that had to have been alive when Jesus was. They had to be, so the disciples were also apostles. Paul was allowed to be an apostle because he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus the day he came to faith apostles are people that lived during the time of christ interacted with him or interacted closely with the disciples and so they were able to then write because they had the authority given to them to do that there are five books though that were not written by apostles and strangely they're still in the new testament This is because they were very close to an apostle, or they were close to Jesus, but not necessarily a disciple. Example, the book of Mark. Mark was not a disciple. This Mark who wrote was not, but he was close to Peter. So he was allowed to write. Luke and Acts, he was close to Paul. Hebrews, we assume Paul wrote Hebrews, but we don't know for sure who wrote Hebrews. But there's a lot of ways that it's written. That's like Paul. And then Jude was actually Jesus's brother. So he was allowed to write his tiny little scribbling of a, of, a, of a book of the Bible. So there are a few that were not actual apostles that were still validated as not contradicting any other scripture and seemed to be God-breathed. So by 367 AD... This is when it was confirmed, 367 AD. It was called the 39th partial, Paschal, I guess, letter of Athanasius. This is when they contained the exact list of the New Testament books, which is 27 books of the Bible. So by 367, we for sure had agreed upon the 27 books of the Bible. So the entire Bible was put together less than 400 years after Christ for us to have an entire Bible. So, what do you think is the ultimate reason books are considered can- canonical? Um, it was absolutely necessary for the book to have divine authorship. If the words of the book are God's words through human authors, if the early church believed that it was the Word of God, it was under the doctrine of the apostles, they preserved the books as part of Scripture then they believed the books were part of the canon. So it was a process. Did the church all affirm it? And they had to look around. Oh, did the church in northern Africa agree with the church in Israel? And so they were talking to the church as a whole. They'd have whole conferences and councils to figure this out.